0: I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apetz. And I'm Jill Duggan. Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward. But working through the complexity is rewarding. Here in each episode, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet and our planet. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the choice episode for December 2021 of Join the Dots. An advantage of starting a podcast series in late October is that I, for one, don't feel like the end of the year has come. The tiredness has set in because we're just starting season two. We spent November talking about and reporting from COP in Glasgow. um, And now we're back to preparing for our uh, festive season. We talked about the festive season last year in season one and not being able to meet up with families due to COVID then made us focus more on the true gift of giving time, showing love and support rather than spending money buying the next big toy, indulging on festive spending, perhaps even beyond our means. All that is still valid this year, but at least in the UK, we're hoping to be able to see some family members. Although this week in particular, um, <laughs> yeah, there's, I could see on screen, fingers are being crossed, eyebrows are being raised. But this week in particular, we're waiting for Omicron related announcements and maybe the Christmas will be postponed. In any case, whether we are in our home or in meeting family, one thing is for sure in Britain, at least, that we are going to be drinking a lot more than in the normal time. And I, for one, realised one of the rare times that I don't have environmental anxiety is when I'm having my first pint of the day. But I do also think about what the impact of that pint is, or or wine, or whiskey, or whatever your favourite tipple. So we're particularly lucky to have dachma Drogsma with us. So, Dagmar, can you tell us a little bit about yourself or we dive into why are you our guest for our choice for especially the impacts of the drinking alcoholic beverages for this episode?
1: Yes, and I'm very happy to do that. And thanks for inviting me. So I have worked on environmental issues and tackling climate change since about 2005. I first did this in the public sector, working for the UK government until... 2018 and since March this year I worked for a global environmental NGO but the two and a half year in between I worked for the trade body of the Scots whiskey industry and my main job was helping them to develop their sustainability and net zero strategy. And then on on top of that, I'm a huge wine fan, so I think I did my first wine course in about 2000, 2001, and I've been learning about wine ever since, and, and also about the sustainability of wine, so very happy to talk about that today.
0: Thank you for that introduction, Dagmar. I dug a few numbers up because I was interested in what the consumption figure was like over the festive period in the UK. But I've seen that one source, and we'll have these sources on the website, that we spent something like £12 billion on alcoholic beverages over the four weeks to Christmas. I think that was 2019. And beer, wine, whiskey and champagne are the top choices. In Christmas 2018, that meant that an individual consumed 26 units of alcohol per day, particularly between Christmas and New Year. And in the UK, the drink advice is not to drink more than 14 units a week.
2: I saw that statistic, changed. Mm. and I was just flabbergasted by that because I kind of recognised that people drink a lot in that period. But that just seemed... I suppose what, one of the things I'm trying to get my head around is what does that look like in terms of glasses of wine and champagne or whiskey? Is that an average? That's
1: correct, Jill. That's correct. It's an average. And overall, uh, what you see, and this is information I know from working in the spirits industry, is that in general, the average citizen actually drinks quite nicely within the limits. It's a tiny category that drinks an awful lot more than they would do anyway, and that then skews the average. It is true though that for seasons, even the average drinker goes up a bit. But overall, it's not as bad that everyone drinks twenty-six units, so at least mm-hmm. twice as much as they ought to drink from a health perspective.
2: I just, out of while we were talking, I did a very, very quick Google search, probably very unscientific, that said a bottle of gin had twenty-eight units in it, if it was about thirty-seven and a half percent volume. So, so the the twenty-six units a day that some people, or that on average we're drinking over the festive period between Christmas and New Year, is equivalent to a bottle of gin a day, although some people are drinking a lot more, but probably most people are upping their average intake.
3: That puts in perspective. I was thinking that a bottle of gin was somewhere in the 20 to 30 Mm. unit Mm -hmm. range. I don't know about you, but I feel very
0: paranoid about if I have a very heavy hangover but (laughs) on top of that paranoia it was like where did the malt for my beer come from where does the grape come from is what kind of bottling or aluminium is you know what kind of effect the packaging has etc but you mentioned Dagmar that there's a lot of sustainability work you yourself has been involved in the drink industry and it's very complex so can you tell us a little bit about how how the industry defines sustainability what kind of impacts there are along the chain that they're concerned about and we should be concerned about yeah
1: and there's a couple of things to that I think the sort of narrow definition of sustainability looks at the environmental impacts. The wider definition of sustainability that particularly in the spirit sector a lot of companies use is that it is also about social and economic sustainability. So therefore it is about how much do you reward your staff, are their salaries fair, is your company one that is inclusive, and particularly in the spirit industry, because they obviously know spirits start over 37%. They are very, very aware that too much spirit drinking can be bad for your health. So all of them have big campaigns on promoting responsible drinking. I think for now, perhaps let's focus on on the environment aspect. Then it's not necessarily straightforward. So if you are someone who runs a vineyard, And nowadays, you're very, very able to have a very clean vineyard. Let's use the word clean. Everything is done in a proper way from an environmental perspective. But very often, you actually, you don't have control over transport because you may ship it somewhere. You may just rent a little bit of space in a container and the shipping owner will not really care about what you want. However... You cannot simply say you should drink local because your local wine may be produced in a really dirty way. And actually the transport miles may not result in a bigger environmental footprint. So that is what makes it a bit complicated in a way you always got to look at it quite holistically.
3: So let's look at a vineyard. What are the sort of practices a vineyard does to ensure they have what you're calling clean practices? What, how do they improve the sustainability of their growth and, and fermentation practices? So organic wine is very
1: much focused on how you grow your grape and you can, you can meet certification standards. And that is then about how you use pesticides basically you can't use them it's about your land and soil managers it's about yeah, how you preserve your environment and it's also about storage and in the eu for example standards on that are set by law in states like california as well and there's quite a few schemes around the world biodynamic takes it a step further personally i really quite like that concept all biodynamic wine is organic but it really then looks at farming of the vineyard as a whole entity. It's, it's quite fascinating.
2: So Dagmar, I, I've been very lucky to have a biodynamic organic English wine this year. And English wines are very expensive. But from what I can see, and I've spent a bit of a year of going around the vineyards and Kent and Sussex, which says probably quite a lot about me, but... They seem to be their new vineyards and they seem to be mostly organic. Is that right? And is, is there a, a sustainability lesson for us if we can afford them? Yes, I think that's
1: definitely right. And Actually, climate change is starting to become quite dramatic for lots of parts of the world to produce wine. And they're very aware that by becoming sustainable, by treating the land well, doing all the right things, they can continue to produce wine for a longer time. You particularly see in England that most of the new vineyards directly go for organic or or sustainability criteria, what have you. It's very, very common for most vineyards to think about those things, but there is a price attached to it. If you buy wine for three, four pounds, if you can even get them still, it's unlikely they're sustainable. So they do tend to be a bit more expensive, unfortunately.
3: Dagmar, I want to circle back if I might. I mean, you, you you mentioned that biodynamic wines embrace a certain sort of philosophy about a more holistic environmental philosophy. But for our listeners, just what are a couple of examples in practice of what you might do differently then? There's always a little bit of a laugh
1: about biodynamic farmers having cow horns in their vineyards with manure from the cows to make the ground and the soil healthier. You know, and the jury is a little bit out on whether that is all scientific, but you can definitely see that the soil management from biodynamic farmers is really good. and the Land generally is really healthy. Just also a caveat, because, you know, to get organic certification or biodynamic certification can be quite expensive. So if a wine hasn't got the logo on the bottle, you can't just conclude that they're not biodynamic organic. A lot of farmers, particularly in France, do everything that relates to organic, but they don't go for the certification because they find that too expensive. And you see that worldwide as well. And that makes it for a consumer a little bit difficult exactly to know, you know, what wine is a good wine from a sustainability perspective.
3: That's really interesting, Dagmar. Once the wines are harvested and you're producing the wine, are there differences for biodynamic and organic wines than conventional wines? Or is it from there pretty much treated the same?
1: No, there are definitely differences. So, for for example, when you go to an organic or biodynamic vineyard, you often see different ways of fermentation. And this now goes... (laughs) really quite technical, but what's quite popular are to use concrete eggs for fermentation as opposed to stainless steel, you know, huge tanks. However, using a stainless steel tank doesn't mean you can't be organic. And so there's lots Mm. of subtleties there. Mm. It's probably just how far the owner of the vineyard Mm. wants to go.
0: Talking about processing, I only very recently realized that there are non-vegetarian stroke non-vegan wines i thought all
1: wine was no most at least vegetarian most wines are not vegan yeah and that is because traditionally materials were used for what is called finding the wine if you don't find a wine then the wine is very cloudy it has lots of sediments and when you're finding agents it clarifies it And traditionally, this used to be things that, you know, like gelatine and and, and fishing agents and what have you. Yeah, some very
0: gross things. Sorry, can I just read? These are really gross stuff. I'm not sure it's gross, actually. It doesn't affect your health (laughs) at all. No, no, it doesn't. It's just the idea. Like, I can understand why people become vegan when you read things like this. Look, one of the finding agents is a collagen extracted from the bladders of specific breeds of fish. I mean, I just never thought about it.
1: Yeah, or gelatine, which I is from animal bones.
0: Ge- yeah. From bones, yeah. exactly. But most people eat cakes I... with
1: gelatin in it, and they don't care about your
0: animal bone. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right. What grosses me out might be normal for some somebody else, but it's just I only realized because I was going to dinner at a vegan friend's house And she made a point that if we were to bring wine, we should look at the label, that it should be vegan. And that's the only time I realized that there was non-vegan
1: wine. So there's a huge trend now to produce what is called natural wine, and that is wine with no intervention whatsoever. The reality, though, is that a lot of natural wines are not good. (laughs) <laughs> and it's really, what's the expression in English? Luck of the drawer.
3: Mm-hmm. So there
1: are some good ones on the market, but it's really, really hard for the winemaker if they can't and intervene to know for sure that they have a product that people will want to drink because you just leave it to nature. And that is very costly. You have to have a lot of money to be able to dare produce those sorts of wines because customers may not like it. I
2: have to say I have drunk some natural wine that I thought smelled disgusting. I couldn't bring myself to drink it because the smell was so bad. You know, aficionados will put up with the smell because the wine, once you get past the smell, is meant to be very good. Which brings me to the, the question of the impact of these additional things on flavour as well as on just clarity.
3: So, Jill, what did it smell like to you?
2: I don't think I could say on a sort of normal podcast, but You know, a mixture of urine and other less desirable, you know, it wasn't a nice smell. To me, it wasn't
0: something I wanted to drink. No (laughs) Advantages of having a not normal podcast, (laughs) you
1: can say these things. No, and, and it is fair to say there are natural wines on the market that are really, really good. But you pay a lot of money for it and the winemaker takes a risk because he cannot at all, he's got no certainty whatsoever what the end product is.
3: So now we've grown our wine and we've talked about some more sustainable growing practices and we've produced our wine and now we're going to bottle it I mean, we all think of a traditional glass bottle with a cork, although we're getting more and more used to screw tops as sort of the proper way, at least in my generation, for wine to be. But what are the trade-offs there?
1: So I guess first of all, in terms of the container, so you can definitely put wine in something that looks more like paper, but... You would really only do that for cheap wine, that you drink really quickly. It's not for wine that you would want to store. And if you buy a bottle of Lafitte, which costs you like one and a half thousand pounds, you want to be sure that that bottle stays during its lifetime, because you probably only drink it in 40 years' time, that mm. when you open it, it is as nice or nicer than what it was put in the bottle. Mm. And with paper, that doesn't work. You have alternatives, but it's on the lower end at the moment of the market. And if you want to go for for better wines, then glass is still the thing that is really good for aging of wines. And that is at the moment not yet a good alternative.
3: So let's talk about day-to-day, not the bottles that I'm going to store for a decade, but table wine. When I was young, we used to always joke about people that drank wine from a box. But I have read that they have gotten much better about boxed wines and that for a day-to-day table wine, you can get a fairly decent wine out of a box. Is that true? It is true. So this is a bit about what do you
1: like. And so if you're perfectly happy with a wine that tastes like wine, that is,
2: you you won't have a wow factor, then yeah, absolutely perfect. There's a packaging issue as well, because those wine boxes, they have plasticized foil in the container. So at least with the wine bottle, if they are properly recycled, they retain some value or reused even better, I guess.
1: It's a very valid point. So in in the waste sector... It's not that I'm an expert on the waste sector, but they will say that they prefer glass because in the end, 100% of glass can be recycled and reused. The fact that not every country has got a recyclable schemes is something else. But for example, in Belgium, I think about 97 to 98% of glass is
3: being recycled. I wanted to raise another issue The glass is heavy. I mean, I've been noticing a lot of the brew pubs I go to have gone back to cans because they're lighter. How much does the weight and transport affect your argument?
1: So there's still producers who use very, very heavy bottles, and that's just not necessary. And actually, there's even a trend amongst wine drinkers to not want to have those bottles. So I think that you will start to see a change there. So some countries hardly use heavy bottles anymore and it has got an impact on transport. Yeah, so it's a very fair Mm -hmm. point.
0: So talking about so packaging and transport, I read somewhere that the screw tops was better because aluminium tops made sort of protected the wine better or avoid spoilage. But you're much more in favour of the traditional cork because it's a biological matter.
1: Both have a place, but cork is a natural product. It has a very low carbon footprint. It's produced in a very small part of the world where orchard management is actually really, really good portugal right yeah yeah and actually the beauty of cork is also that you can use it for lots of other products i'm not saying that people necessarily do that but mm-hmm. screw craps are produced through processes where you use industrial heat there's hardly any schemes in the world that properly and efficiently deal with recycling of screw caps. so I, th- I think there's a lot of research being done at the moment about sustainability of the two, and most people feel that corks is still much more sustainable. Mm -hmm. From a winemaker's perspective, you will use screw caps for bottles that don't need to age very long. And actually now some of the materials used for screw caps because there's different types of materials for screw caps are now so good that you can actually probably store bottles for 10, 15 years, but there is just no evidence yet that if you have a bottle that you want to keep for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that screw caps can do it. Perhaps they can. Someone needs to dare try it. But then cork is still a favourite. Although you can have problems with cork because it is not always stable. There's difference in the level of cork you can buy. In Countries like Australia, for example, have often complained that they don't get the best cork. But that is reserved perhaps for markets closer to Portugal. (laughs) I don't know if they're right, but you particularly see therefore in countries like Australia and New Zealand that their screw cap is much more popular.
0: I tend to go for kind of European wines because I think that I want to avoid sort of shipping wine from New Zealand, Australia, or Chile, Argentina, South Africa, or whatever. But am I right, or am I making the wrong decision, not paying enough attention to how the wine is produced locally versus how many miles it travels?
1: I think in an ideal world, indeed, you would have the data about every part of the process, and then you know whether, indeed, the environmental footprint is worse for one wine than the other. So I think, really it's quite hard to say that the local wine is necessarily better.
0: Yeah. Where do we find that kind of information though? Do we go to sort of producer's website or the certifier's website or something?
1: Well, this is where it becomes complicated because you will actually see that if they're part of certification schemes, it gives you quite a good idea. And you could look at sustainability certification schemes. You could look at whether they're organic or biodynamic, although they're does not look at transport, but at least part of the process is really sound. But if you go to websites from wine producers, you often don't find a lot of information. You know, what you can do as a consumer, you can, for example, favour wine merchants and supermarkets that work with sustainable producers, and some really do. You can definitely ask your wine merchants or your supermarkets what steps they have taken to make sure that wines are sustainably produced. It is consumer power. If we all ask that, I'm very certain that they will change from whom they purchase their wines. So the advantage of wine is though that you have those schemes because then, you know, we haven't talked yet about Scots whisky or other spirits. Yeah, no, but they... Don't tend to have the schemes. However, their websites tend to give more information.
3: I really like the big, smoky, heavy, peaty whiskies. And of course, peat is a real problem. So, talk to me about peat and whiskey. So, there's a big uh,
1: misunderstanding about peat. So, lots of people seem to think that whiskey makers use peat for burning, for processes it is just a flavor agent and so if you look at the in the uk of the peat that is on the market the whiskey industry uses less than one percent of peat that is being sold at the market because they only use it
3: for flavoring okay I- I understood the peat was being used to toast the grain. No. Am I wrong there? Yes, no, not at all. So quantitatively, it's really nothing like the garden soil and the damage to peat bogs for development? No, it's really tiny. And on top of
1: that, the industry is really, really aware of the fact that It's quite a symbolic thing, and people don't necessarily know what peat is being used for. So they feel quite a big responsibility. They, They want to continue using peat for flavorings. So a lot of them actually are investing in schemes that relate to restoring peat. So a few of the whiskey makers have got their own peat fields. Generally, they buy it through others, and... Quite a few are working with Scottish government and organisations like IUCN to help restore peat, even though they're only a small part of the users.
3: I can't tell you how happy that makes me because that takes one bit of guilt out of my life.
0: And it's also I think the peat is not just useful for whiskey in terms of flavour, but in terms of the the quality of and quantity of water that producers get, isn't it? I thought that was part of the reason why they want to sort of protect nature so the water filters through the peat box and it's clean and clear. And
1: But I would think that's only a small percentage. So most um, wine whiskey distillers are near rivers. And so that what matters is that rivers are clean. Yeah. And so it's nice if it's near a peat bog, as long as that peat bog is restored. But you should know that in the UK, about 90% of peat is degraded. Yeah. So actually, you've got to be quite lucky to be near a peat box that is doing its its trip.
0: I'm thinking of particularly the, some space-side projects where the whisky producers, I think, were investing in some renovation of peat box. But I'll put the link to that, that study I'm thinking about on our website anyway.
2: So, Dagmar, you were working with Scotch whisky producers on their sustainability plans. And one, well, I'm really interested in the sort of things that they were doing, but also as a consumer or even as a purchaser of whiskey as gifts, what are the sort of things, the indicators to your average consumer when, you know, we don't have full information, we can't be bothered to go on a website, what can we look for?
1: In the beginning of this year, the whiskey industry adopted their new sustainability strategy, and this, Yeah, you I know, worked for a trade body of which about 95% of the whiskey makers are a member, so they all committed to going to net zero by 2040. And that's quite a feat because they are an industry that is dependent on industrial heat. And so that means that actually at this moment in time, they do not even really know how they're going to do that. And so they are, you know, we're talking about a risky process that needs heat at incredibly high temperatures. They can't use electricity because it doesn't get those temperatures. So they need boilers at high temperatures. So quite a few are already converting to boilers that are being heated by biomass or by biofuels. They're also investing in research in terms of high temperature heat pumps, because that may be a solution. And they're looking forward to particularly green hydrogen. But they also, you know, they don't know yet how well they can use it. For whiskey makers, boilers, you know, which just seems like an industrial thing, are really important. And if you start to tamper with it, it can actually change the profile of your whiskey. So you want to do that in a very responsible way so that the drink at the end doesn't change. So a lot about their net zero aspect is about the energy process. So 90% of their emissions probably comes from the energy they use. But besides that, they've also committed indeed to, what just talked about, peat, which is about you know, using peat responsibly and as minimum as possible and investing in restoring it. Um, They're looking at biodiversity of their sites and investing it. And there's some brilliant projects that some of them are doing, where, for example, they're working together with water companies using wastewater to filter whatever and having new oyster fields and what have you. It's, It's really quite exciting stuff they're doing. And they're looking very much at the packaging. So for the whiskey industry, packaging is the hardest part of their net zero and sustainability commitments. And that's partly because they've got to use glass, but actually, you know, it's a high-end product and a lot of the consumers, unfortunately, still want all the wrapping and packaging around it. And that is something, a behavior that they really, really need to change because, you know, why would you want a bottle with a packaging around it? its It's just wasteful. But they still see that in certain markets the consumer demands it, otherwise they don't want to buy it. Now, ultimately, you know, the economic aspect comes in there. Having said that, there's a lot of investment also, you know, working with packaging industry and in trying to change that. But that will take a little bit of time. And they also have the transport issue. So 90% of Scotch whisky is exported. Yeah, so that is a lot. And most is being shipped. Now, and that goes back then to, you know, you may ship a part of your whiskey to, say, Taiwan, but you only need a tenth of a container. So when I worked with the Scots whiskey industry, we had discussions about, you know, what can you do about transport? They feel that within Scotland, they've got the market power to change things. But the moment you then go, global it becomes much harder and so this is actually something about what I think you know working for an environmental organization we can help because this is about changing the demand side so that shippers actually got to follow what those who use their services want and that is not about individual companies this is about bringing sectors together so that the operators, the shipping operators, got to listen to what the cargo, you know, the people who bring the cargo in need to do. That is the hardest part. And that's true for the wine industry as well, of course.
3: So what is it that the shippers would be different, do differently to be more sustainable? This is still very much about the fuel they use.
1: And so there's lots and lots of discussions going on about, you know, Alternative fuel
2: use. Design of the ships. There's a lot of things that can be done to reduce the fuel use and the kind of fuel that ships use and to make them much more efficient. And so I think there's a a big, big topic for the future as well.
3: But that means getting rid of an old fleet and really renewing the shipping fleets, or can you upgrade old
2: ships? You you can upgrade old ships. you You can use different fuels. You can do quite a lot.
3: Hmm, interesting. And
1: countries starting to take action. You know, the EU now has proposed a carbon market trading system for shipping. The International Maritime Organization is looking into what it can do and it's looking at the fuel side, perhaps also in the future, looking at carbon markets. So things are happening, but perhaps not as fast as we would like it. That's the theme of our lives, I think. It is. But I, I think just to go back to the Scots whiskey industry, I think for a lot of, for whiskey, but for a lot of spirits industries, particularly those spirits that you keep for longer, you know, what has really impressed me with those company owners is that they really understand the concept of sustainability because they know that the consumer is changing. And if you make a whiskey now, it will probably only be sold in 10 or 15 years. So you
3: therefore have got to start your sustainability process now. You can't wait. We've talked about wine and we've talked about whiskey. I'm assuming a lot of things in champagne are similar to wine. But the thing we drink quickly after production and one of the most popular tipples in the country is beer. So
1: beer also uses an industrial process. So basically the first step of making a spirit are very similar to making a beer. And so, you know, in theory therefore there's the steps the beer industry ought to take are quite similar to the spirit industry. They also have got a, a big thing with energy. And I know, for example, that in the UK, there is a big beer trade body. They're really they're looking into what the industry can do. I don't know how far advanced they are, but there's definitely a, a
2: real discussion there about how they can do better. I think with a lot of these food and drink producers, there is a growing awareness that they need and willingness to be out in front of their competitors on this. So they recognize the value of consumer interest and pressure.
3: But I see you shaking your head, Dagmar. What don't we know? Um, As a consumer, when you really want
1: to know, you know, what sustainability for a product is, you've got to ask questions. You've got to go to websites and you've got to ask questions. When a company says they will go net zero and you don't really believe it, it is useful indeed investigating their websites a bit. So... I'm aware, for example, of some producers, and I I won't name any names, that claim they go to net zero. But then when you start to look at it, the only thing they do is planting trees. Mm. Now, that is not about going to net zero. That
3: just means you plant trees. You still got to reduce your emissions. So we really need to ask producers what it is and how they define their net zero claims is what I'm hearing.
1: Absolutely, but also there's also definitely a powerful role for merchants and supermarkets.
3: Mm -hmm. Is there a role for government in this? Is there a top down? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. This that we can ask for? Yeah,
1: we're lucky. We live in a country and we live in a part of the world where there are top down targets, Uh, but then there is still an individual choice for companies on how they want to implement that. And so I think the interesting thing is that the UK government has set net zero by 2050, Scottish government by 2045. For me, it then becomes interesting if certain companies or sectors want to do it earlier, and then I'm starting to ask questions about how are you going to do that? And is that credible? And do you have a plan? And you know, coming back to the Scots whiskey sector, They did not just make that up, they used one of the reputable consultancy firms in that space to draft scenarios for them, how they could best do Mm. it. And they also acknowledged that, you know, if you're a tiny whiskey company where you may only have one distillery, your pathway to net zero, frankly, may be a lot easier. It may be the conversion of one of your boilers. But if you're one of the big guys and you have about 30 distilleries, it may take a bit longer. You know, you may have more money, but it will take longer. And so they all have their own pathways. As a consumer, you can ask what the plan is and whether the plan is credible.
2: Well, thank you to our guest, Dagmar, who's provided a wealth of information about what the wine industry and the Scotch whisky industry in particular are doing to address sustainability. And clearly, one of the things that's quite difficult if you're a consumer is having some easy access to information at the moment on this. If we want to dig, then there's going to be a bit more out there. You've given us some um, confidence that the whiskey industry, at least, is looking very carefully at what it's doing. and will get better at this over, over time. So it's taking incredible steps to address its sustainability. But that's not always going to be visible on the bottle that we buy. I think you've told us quite a bit about what winemakers are doing and the lessons that I've taken, so please shout if I'm wrong, that organic wines and biodynamic wines are a good place to start if you can afford them, and buying from regions close to home, and luckily for those of us living in northern Europe, the the wines closer to home are getting better and better with climate change, but that's not the same everywhere. So learning about your local producers, but also recognising that some producers will not have gone for organic certification that might be as good as. So it's a quite complicated picture. And for the wine buffs out there, go and look on the website of the wines and the vineyards where you like their wines to find out more and to see if you can persuade yourself that they're doing enough. And I think the other thing that you've said to us is it's really important that we go to our supermarkets and our our providers to let them know what we want, because actually They're the ones that can put the right sort of pressure on producers around the world to make sure that they're cutting their emissions in the transportation of of drink and in the production of drink and in the packaging of drink. And that's one of the last bastions, particularly in some markets, is that people still demanding pretty packaging when they don't need it and creating a lot of unnecessary waste. That's been a really, really interesting, um, not entirely guilt-free, therefore, tipples over Christmas and those frightening statistics about how much many of us drink over Christmas. But having said all of that, I think I at least will be able to enjoy a tipple thinking that things are going in the right direction. So thanks very much.
3: Thank you, Dagmar.
1: I've got to run because I smell be that the dinner food time. is almost ready. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and we're opening
3: a nice bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> it was nice meeting Thank you. Me. I'd, like to, I'd like to drink wine with you sometime. And well, get we should meet and up night. and drink
1: a glass of wine, yes.
3: <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCune and Anna Gunn. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.